This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Timmy's the protest. Are you tired of this? What's going on? Has this got legs? What's happening? Protests are going on today against Tim Hortons, not just in Ontario, but across the country. Uh, Are they leaving a mark on the company? Is it affecting anybody? Is it making change? Uh, A Whitby location of Tim Hortons wrote a memo to staff blaming the cost cuts on the Ontario government and actually urged them uh, not to vote liberal in the next election. So, um, you know, it has become political, but I guess it becomes political as soon as the the premier steps up and and calls the company uh, bullies, which, you know, she's certainly entitled to do. But that's when it all of a sudden becomes political. Uh, Where is this going and uh, uh, who is behind all of this? Let's talk to uh, and, and, you know, we've tried Tim Hortons and um, they just nobody wants to talk about this. Nobody wants to. Anybody who's involved with Tim Hortons doesn't want to say anything because they don't want to get their nose slapped. And, um, you know, Tim Hortons isn't commenting. And I'm not sure how much of this is on their radar yet until it actually does start to affect sales. So uh, is it going to affect sales? I'm not sure. Let's bring in uh, Cristo Avalis. He is Social Sciences and Humanities uh, Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. He is with us now. Cristo, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. So are you surprised this is still going on? Do you think this has legs? Is it dying out? I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, the fact that it's gone on this long means it definitely had legs, right? I mean, you know, often consumer kind of disgruntlement, you know, uh, dies out after a couple days. You know, things can blow up on the Internet, but the Internet also has a short attention span. So you kind of feel like, you know, two, maybe three days. The fact that this has been really almost three weeks now, um, is quite surprising. I don't know if it's going to keep going. I mean, there are, you know, over 50 protests across uh, Ontario, but also Canada about this today uh, at various Tim Hortons locations. So uh, even if it dies out, you know, soon after now, it, it certainly had a good run. Uh, why do you think Tim Hortons has become the whipping boy here? Now, we certainly obviously know the story out of Kingston with the uh, founding uh, family members who started all this way back when by putting a note out saying you're going to get your cut in benefits as a result of all of this, uh, sort of taking the hit for everybody. Um, and, and certainly we know that the premier has spoken out uh, against that. But why has this, why have they been focusing, why have they been the focus of the movement, do you think? Well, a few things. The one that was in it was in Coburg, the 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 branch, not not in Kingston. Right. To, sorry to clarify, but no, no, but yeah, uh, but but I mean, I think it's. For, for anybody me, lives here, by the way? It's all the same thing. But no, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> no, <laughs> I no, stand corrected. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, what you mentioned is, is a big part of it. You know, they're connected to the company. They're not just some random franchisee that you know in Aurelia or in Peterborough or in Kingston or in Ottawa that that has no connection to the company. People can point to them and say, look, there's a line here. The premier has responded, so that makes it news. But I think, you know, Tim and, and multiple Tim Horton branches have been implicated since that Coburg incident. But, you know, Tim Hortons is, it really plays itself up as this, you know, all-Canadian company that's there for all Canadians of all backgrounds. And it's, it's the company you take your kids to before or after hockey. And right. it's the, the company that, that's there to give you a hot chocolate and a, cold day and an ice cap on a hot day. And, and when you have that kind of mentality, I think people would kind of expect something from that in terms of like treatment of workers. Um, and I think that's why there's a certain backlash against them as vis-a-vis, say, McDonald's, which I think people see, you know, don't see as this kind of Canadian icon. 
It seems everybody has an opinion on this, Christo, but no, is anybody speaking with their dollars? Is Tim Hortons experiencing less people coming through uh, the door and, and sales? I mean, I guess it's too early to know that, but I mean, I've heard no stories of that at this point. Are people, you know, there was talk of boycotting Tim's, but is that, is that happening? And, and at the end, won't that be the final, really the final uh, determination as to whether this works or not? I mean, if, if people don't like it, they'll stop buying. I mean, yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, data about is this affecting business, you know, I'm guessing that even if it was, we probably wouldn't be told. I mean, Tim Hortons probably gets aggregate data from their their franchises. But again, do they get that data every three weeks or every month? Maybe it's a quarterly thing. If that's the case, and we won't even know, even if we ever do find out until then. I mean, uh, RBI, I believe, is a publicly traded company. You could maybe see when they're yeah. when they give you know to their shareholders. You could look and say, do we see a decline in revenue from their Tim Hortons holdings? Yeah, it'd be but, interesting you know, just what? to it'd even be yeah. interesting just to talk to managers. And of course, none of them are talking now for obvious reasons. Uh, just to see if they've noticed anything in sales. Yeah, I mean that would be one thing. I mean there have been some people that said they won't go to Tim Hortons. Some people have said, look, I'm not. You know, in Coburg, they said I'll go to a Tim Hortons, but not the one owned by those people. Right. You know. Um, some people have said, look, we're not boycotting Tim Hortons, but we're trying to raise awareness about the issues that are happening today. That's the kind of motivation of the protest today. Many of those people uh, are loyal Tim Hortons customers, um, but they want to raise the, the awareness about the, the treatment of workers. So I don't think there's a concerted decision of are we, boycott, are we boycotting or not. And so I, I think that's, that's a little unclear at this moment, what the actual economic effects are on the franchises and the, the parent corporation. Do you think people are understanding this anymore? Do you think anything's changing here? I mean, there's you know there's a recent poll out, and I think the majority of Ontarians believe that the minimum wage should be re, should be raised. Uh, that's not the issue. I think the problem is well, the problem is the speed in which it was done. Um, uh, but what about the issue that Tim Hortons paid more than they had to anyway? And 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 um, now, of course, they've cut back on that because, uh, you know, uh, of the predicament that they find themselves in caught between the, the head office and government, you know, head office not allowing them to raise prices, the government telling them what they have to pay. So uh, the, the fact that Tim Hortons has always been a, a pretty good employer, I was I don't know if I'm going to say really good, but I think them and McDonald's are, are certainly known for. Uh, their employment standards, their training, uh, you know, mentoring people to move on and up through the company and such. Um, You know, is that resonating in this at all that, you know, at the end of the day, the people that work at Tim's probably liked it anyway? You know, I'll say my personal experience of working at Tim Hortons a few years ago was probably less than ideal. Uh, You know, it's a minimum wage job. They treat you like it a lot of the time. That's my personal experience. Um, I think that, yeah, a lot of Tim Hortons maybe paid people something between the old minimum wage and the current one. But even but, with the benefits, but even with the yeah. benefits, Crystal, like this this one in Coburg, I understand, paid like 100% of dental. Now they're cutting it back to 50. Uh, there'll be many out I mean, there. There'll be many out there making minimum wage that said, you know, I, I'd like to have a minimum wage job that even paid for my dental or anything. So I mean, no, it, that's that's true. But a lot of these positions, that's only for full time workers. Like I, I think, um, I guess the point that I'm making here, Christo, is that everybody's painting. You know, and and I'm 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 you know I see the argument on both sides of this. 
Um, but, you know, it seems that Tim Hortons is being pay, uh, painted as a big bad guy here. And, you know, in fact, they, they always treated their workers pretty well. They overpaid them with benefits and, and, and other things that, that normal scenarios like that don't. Uh, and now they're being attacked as being a bully because the premier said so. Uh, and, well, he, and they're trying to react like any other con- uh, company who's probably doesn't want to weigh into this at all simply because they've seen the bad PR that Tim's has now got. Uh, so the last thing they want to do is, is be, you know, spat on by everybody who's on the Tim Hortons bandwagon. It just seems odd that, uh, you know, that it sort of turned out the way it did, that, you know, here's a company that's making adjustments because there there is ramifications when you jack up somebody's costs this way. I mean, in, in every expert, every association, I mean, you know, every professor I've talked to said, yes, there's going to be ramifications. So, again, they're adjusting as a company between a rock and a hard place, meaning they can't raise prices. Uh, uh, It has to come from somewhere. So this is one of those ramifications. And now all of a sudden an employer that's been painted over time as being pretty good is now like these guys are scumbags. And, you know, it just seems that it just seems it just. I mean, some of them are. I I don't. There's one in Hamilton that took over. I don't deny it. I don't. Yeah, yeah I think that's part of the issue here is that we we are talking. So you're about saying that the majority of Tim Hortons franchisees are scumbags? Is that no, what you're saying? I'm saying? What I'm saying is that we have a disconnect here. What you yeah. just said the employer, but really we have hundreds of employers we're talking about. Some of which are good, some of which are bad. Yeah, because yeah, they're all different. Somewhere in between. Yeah, and this is part of the problem. You raise an interesting point: is that it's difficult for the franchisees. Mm-hmm. Now, this is also a problem with Kathleen Wynne's labor reforms. Kathleen Wynne's labor reforms, the Ontario Federation of Labor and the ONDP, the Fight for 15, all recommended that, you know, there needs to be a new way of bargaining with franchises. And franchises like Tim Hortons should be treated for collective bargaining purposes Mm -hmm. as one large employer in the province. So that's the issue here. And I was going to ask you about that. How do these employees unionize? Do they have to do it on a store-per-store basis? Well, there's two... So... In the recent reforms, one of them was kind of revived from the, the ONDP government in the 90s. Um, it makes it a little bit easier for you to organize multi-location, single-employer businesses. Say, like, The Bay. Mm-hmm. The Bay isn't a franchise. The Bay owns The Bay. Right. But, you know, each store used to be you'd have to organize store by store. Now you can organize store by store but have overarching agreements. Mm-hmm. Tim Hortons, though, is considered... Each franchisee is considered a distinct employer, yeah. and, so, and so you have to organize on a different basis. And this is part of the problem, and I've mentioned this before. You're right. Tim Hortons, as a corporation, has immense control over their, over their franchises. They tell them when they can open. They tell them when they can close. They tell them how much they can charge. They tell them what their staff uniforms are. They tell them what napkins to use. They tell them how to lay out the store. Mm-hmm. Yet, Tim Hortons, the corporation, when it comes to labor issues, wipes their hands of it. Mm-hmm. On everything but what workers are paid, the benefits they get, all of that, they, 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 they tell the, the franchisees are up against the wall, the franchise owners. Yeah. But on labor questions, they're allowed to do whatever they want, effectively, is what Tim Hortons is saying. So and I think that's a problem. And I think the corporation, and I think we, the corporation, if it wants to salvage this, and I think we as a province, if we want to you know, adapt to this economy, need to say that corporations need to be responsible for their franchisees on labor questions as much as they are on the napkin question or the Timbit question right. or the which, which industrial cleaner that the floor gets cleaned with and how often it gets cleaned question. Yeah, it kind of makes you know? sense. Think- um, that being said... Um- 
you're suggesting that there should be government changes to allow these I- individual stores to unionize. Uh, is that the direction this is going in? Is that where you see that? Is that uh, be or where's that? Where does this go from here? Because again, well, one year from now, yeah. if if the current government is elected, we're you know we're we're, we're heading for another uh, another race. So where does this go? I mean, I don't see the current government or the conservatives doing that. Frankly, my view is that Kathleen Wynne's labor reforms are still quite employer friendly. They they didn't listen to the kind of a lot of the recommendations from labor, and again. It makes this sector very hard to organize. It's still right now that they're treated as individual employers. So I think if you see a new democratic government, you might see moves towards um, making it easier for these workplaces to unionize and making it ma- getting rid of the fiction in a way that Tim Hortons as a corporation has no labor responsibility to the branches. Right. And I think that could be something that would fix this. And I mean, that could make it a little bit easier on the franchisees. They might therefore be able to say, look, the corporation here, we're bargaining as 500 different groups here. We have to raise prices. And, you know, I think a lot of people are okay with that. I've seen a lot of people say, look, I'll pay, I'll pay a little bit more for my coffee. I like the girl. I like the guy who pours my coffee for me on the way to work each day. They deserve a bit more money. And I think some franchises, you're right, probably agree. And I do think it is a bit hard that they don't have the freedom to raise their prices. Um, it kind of does put them in a hard place. And if Tim Hortons, the corporation, not the individual franchisee, but RBI International, says, look, the only thing you can control is your labor questions, and you're right, in some cases, that's what they're going to try to control, Mm. right? Um, It puts them in a hard place. I mean, Tim Hortons, for instance, the local Tim Hortons down the street can't say, look, we're going to buy non-branded Tim Hortons napkins to save money from Costco because maybe it's 10 cents cheaper a barrel. They can't do that. They can cut benefits, like you said. They can take away paid breaks. Etc. And I think that's probably that's a big problem with our current labor regime. Let me ask and a you a problem with the corporate culture. Let me ask you this, Christo: Is it worth unions? Um, is it worth unions uh, to to go into small places like this? I mean, at the end of the day, do they have the manpower? Is it, is it worth their money to go into small places and unionize? I mean, you know, the unions we've seen merge and such, and. You know, I, I've heard on many scenarios, I mean, if, um, you know, if there's less than however many employees, it's just not worth their while. I mean, you're right that it's a challenge. And I think like any, and I, and I can't speak because each individual union yeah. has different calculations about, about their due structure and how much they're, they're organizers. So I can't say like Union A might say yes, Union B might say no, Union C might say maybe. But I think you know, part of the challenge here is you're right, there's a lot of resources in organizing each individual Tim Hortons and treating it as a separate employer. If, however, the legislation was changed, you'd still have to go Tim Hortons by Tim Hortons to organize the workers in many ways. But in terms of bargaining, you could treat them as one unit. And it would make it a lot harder, for instance, for uh, one particular Tim Hortons to close for a few weeks and open up somewhere else. And I think that would be one way. And I think with with, well... What happens if not everybody wants to unionize within the store, though? I mean, how would that apply? Well, you know, the standard thing is you'd have a, you'd have a, under the current legislation, you get enough of the people to sign a card. Um, the labor uh, department makes sure that those cards are valid, and then you have a vote at a predetermined date. If over 50% of the people say yes to a union, right. that vote, you get a union. I mean, that's the, that's the formula we've used since the 40s. Um, you know, some, 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 some uh, industries like construction, right. uh, they don't have the voting process. They just jump right to the union. I mean, that was another suggestion. All right, i got to cut you off there, Christo, simply because we are out of time. Christo Avalis has been with us, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Postdoctoral Fellow, History, University of Toronto. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The U.S. government could be shut down if a deal isn't made uh, over all kinds of things. Uh, We've certainly heard this before, the government shutting down in some form or another. It's this sort of logjam, I believe, that uh, is the reason we have a president or they have a president like Donald Trump. The whole idea was anybody but the usual, anybody but the establishment, anybody but the professional uh, politician. And, of course, here we are. Uh, pretty much in the same place. Let's bring in Jacob Nyheisel. He is Assistant Professor of Political Science, University of Buffalo, College of Arts and Sciences, uh, specializing in campaigns, elections, and political communication. He's with us now. Jacob, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So give us a little bit of backstory here, uh, Jacob. What exactly is happening? Uh, so the uh, over some of the, the fights that are going on currently regarding immigration with the Democrats uh, holding firm on uh, DACA, the Deferred Action for uh, Childhood Arrivals, and uh, the Republicans uh, holding the line on something resembling a, a border wall uh, that Trump envisioned. Uh, they seem to be at uh, a bit of an impasse over that, and uh, both sides, I think, uh, are planning to blame the others for bringing the government to a shutdown. So what does that mean to Americans if that happens? Well, uh, functionally not a whole lot unless you're an employee of the federal government. Um, so effectively, uh, federal employees who are deemed non-essential will be furloughed, meaning they will not be paid. Uh, and in fact, many of the essential ones will not be either, but they will still be showing up for work. So they're still in military. Uh, the mail will still be delivered. Uh, federal employees just will not be being paid, uh, depending on how long this goes on. Some of the things might be delayed as well. Certain permits, um, applications that have to go through the bureaucracy will be delayed. If you want to visit a national park during a shutdown, that might be proved difficult. But unless you're directly employed by the federal government, probably doesn't mean a whole lot to your daily life. How do disagreements in policy mean a shutdown for the government there? Well, so it, it's somewhat complicated, but uh, traditionally, at least in the last few times, we've seen this kind of a showdown. Uh, it's because there are actually fairly few political costs to it. <laughs> um, mm. uh, most recently in 2013, uh, with a shutdown, um, and both sides, um, well, I think the Democratic side in particular, thought that the Republicans were going to be blamed for that. And then in the 2014 midterms, it wasn't the kind of bloodbath that uh, they were expecting. And I think this is because people just have really short memories, and it's because that these shutdowns, you know, they read about it, um, it's unsettling to look at in the news, but really doesn't affect them directly. Um, and it's the, not like, it's not like we, might. and it's not like we haven't there, you haven't been there before, and, you know, it's more of the same, I guess. Exactly. The, the sky didn't fall in 2013, um, probably not going to fall again, and so uh, I think that uh, these are used uh, really to play politics on both sides. Uh, now, again, I'm certainly not an American, but I'm guessing that this was one of the reasons they voted Donald Trump into office. They were tired of this sort of stuff happening. They were tired of people standing up and reading grain eggs and ham and, and all the <laughs> other filibuster BS that goes on and delay, 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 no action. So how does this play out with, with Trump's core when he's sort of in the same spot that they, they were years ago? That's a great question. Again, I think I've said on this program before that Trump's core is pretty unshakable, and yeah. I think that you know they're going to blame the broader Republican Party and not their guy uh, for this kind of a showdown. When in fact, you know, it's 
really Trump's policies that are at the root here. The Republican Party is trying to follow through on some of his promises, and that's what's coming up against this impasse. Uh, and so I think that he's largely going to escape the blame, at least among the, the faithful. So he's just going to step back and see and say, see, this is the swamp that I'm, I'm trying to change on both sides, both Republican and Democrats. At least he has that, that rhetorical out. Uh, never mind the fact that it's his policy that they're fighting over. Uh, he still can say, you know, I'm the, the deal maker. Uh, it's just this other really slow legislature that we have who, you know, isn't doing what he wants. And if they would only do what he wanted, then it would be better. That being said, uh, these are also members of his party. I mean, you know, when this all started, he controlled everything. And uh, it seemed as if he was going to walk a lot of this right the way through. Uh, clearly, that's not happened. Can you blame the opposition for not supporting you when your own party doesn't? Yeah, I think that's it's an interesting rhetorical ploy on his part and on the part of some of his supporters and the, the more right-wing media on, on talk shows and the like. Um, but it, I don't think it holds a lot of water. <laughs> um, you know, there is perhaps an anti-Trump faction within the Republican Party, and I'm sure there are a number of them who don't really want to work with them, him. But in the end of the day, a win for Trump is a win for the Republican Party in, in many respects. And so... You know, I think they're begrudgingly getting along in, in, in some respects, but yet they, they'd still rather it be the party that survives Trump and, and not necessarily um, Trump uh, moving forward. So uh, Americans' reaction to this, um, most probably just think it's business as usual, and, uh, and for Trump supporters, this is just reinforcement that it's broken. I think that's that's largely correct. Um, you know, there is a widespread misunderstanding. I, I did some local media here as well. And some of the questions I was getting were you know, a little bit panicky in the sense that, you know, Western New York here has 5,000 federal employees, and what's this going to do to the economy in the region if there is a, a government shutdown? And you know, they were a little surprised to hear not much. And so I think, again, going back to the fact that people's memories are pretty short, you know, this happened last in 2013, um, the, the rhetoric surrounding it can be amped up, and people's perceptions could be that it's going to be devastating, uh, when in reality it's probably isn't going to do a whole lot. But but how does this not frustrate Americans on both sides of the political spectrum? Because again, you know, here we are back to square one, green eggs and ham. I think uh, sort of the cumulative effect is that they, they are frustrated. Uh, you are seeing a, a lack of faith in the party system here in the United States. Um, you know, typically you'll, you'll have folks who are a partisan for one side or the other, but um, they still rate the party system pretty lowly. Um, you know, there's this historic seesaw relationship where, you know, Republicans might be up, the Democrats are down, and vice versa. Uh, here, both parties are, are perceived as being, you know, pretty incompetent. Do, do, do Democrats realize that? Do Democrats realize, realize that, again, uh, that Trump supporters are supporting him because he's anything but you guys and girls? Uh, do the Democrats get that yet? Do they understand why they didn't win the election? At some level, I think they have to understand that, you know, again, this is one of the realities of polarized politics, where it really doesn't matter who's in that position of power as long as they wear the other letter, uh, and they're going to get hmm. some measure of support. Um, and so if they're not in tune with the, the realities of a new polarized environment, then you know, I, I think that they're, they've got some, uh, some hard times ahead. <laughs> 
Uh, it seems every week it's another uh, roller coaster. It's another juicy story for people like me to talk about and people like you to try to explain. Um, and certainly the new year has has been filled with them. It's we've pretty much taken over where uh, we left off last year. Uh, fire and fury, the s hole comment. Is that yesterday's news? Now, I mean, yep, we got what we got. Let's move on. Is that the attitude? I. I- I guess. I mean, well, the, the hits just keep on coming, and so it's, it's hard to keep any one of those stories in the news cycle for a protracted period of time uh, when new things just keep hitting <laughs> hitting the airwaves. Um, you know, last week or the week before it was Fire and Fury. This week it's, you know, the, the S-hole comment and other things that were said behind closed doors, uh, and then the, the ensuing firestorm uh, on both sides that, that happened after the fact. So as long as... Um, Things just keep moving along, and the 24-hour news cycle is doing its job. Uh, it's hard to have a very long memory on these things. So what happens later today in regard with with things shutting down, and will the president be in uh, Mar-a-Lago by this afternoon, late this afternoon? I heard some uh, stories saying that he, he might actually call that off, but who, who actually knows? <laughs> um, so I, I read some aspects where there was a tentative deal, uh, in one chamber of Congress, but the other side indicated that really it's a no-go. So, no, I, I think that uh, we, we seem to be rushing headlong into a shutdown. What do you think the tweets will be like this weekend? <laughs> uh, boy, I wish I, I had a better handle on predicting those, but I, I would expect <laughs> classic Trump. Um, mm. He's going to blame Democrats, even though his party's in control, and he's going to blame the swamp and dissident members of the Republican Party. So uh, at the end of the day, how do you think this whole shutdown thing's going to play out? When will this get back on the rails? That's a great question. Um, you know, it depends on how much public pressure there is. Uh, I think right now, um, and this might be a little unusual in the sense that um, both sides believe that the other one is going to be blamed. I think in 2013 it was a little bit different in that the widespread understanding was that the Republican Party was going to eat that. Um, because there didn't turn out to be a bloodbath in the midterm, Maybe both sides are more comfortable rushing into this and making political points at the expense, perhaps, of the nation's standing. Uh, are, are, are those that uh, we talked earlier about, you know, Trump has his core supporters and, and no matter what happens, uh, you know, he was there as, uh, you know, as the alternative. That's the he was there to disrupt. That's what he's doing. So, you know, whatever happens, happens. We're behind him for that. That being said, I'm sure there was and there were lots uh, of Democrats or, or those that were swing voters uh, in the middle there. Um, do you think Trump supporters are disappointed in the sense that, you know, we gave you this opportunity. Uh, there's some good things happening, some say down there, but it just all kinds to it all seems to be overshadowed by the buffoonery that's going on. Do you think there's supporters out there that think that think he's blowing this? I'm sure there are certainly some, and, and I've talked to a few who who have that opinion. Um, but um, you know, political psychology, we talk about something called motivated reasoning, um, and we are a remarkable species in that we can make decisions and then look for all kinds of information that reinforces that decision. Right. And so I think there's a lot of motivated reasoning going on among Trump supporters. Uh, they see failures not as a failure of Trump, their guy, uh, but as a failure of the system, as a failure of the Republican Party, uh, the other side somehow meddling even though they control basically no branch of government. Um, and so I think as long as they can fall back on those kinds of mechanisms for making themselves feel better psychologically, 
then we're going to continue seeing a, a core support um, for the president. What do you think is going to come out the other side of this, and not and not the situation with uh, the shutdown, but the, 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 his whole presidency? Um, you know, because again, this was designed as a, a, a to disrupt, as a protest vote. Anybody but those guys and girls. Um, when we come out the other side of this, whoever leads the country after Trump, uh, do you think things will be different? Do you think we will have learned from this? Do you think we'll look back at Trump and say, you know what, as bizarre as this guy was, he did shake it up and what's come out the other side after him is better? Do you think, you'll, do you think America will get there? I think that's a really great question, and I could see it um, in a classic social scientist way. I could see it actually going both directions. <laughs> um, you know, Americans, and, and I think people in, in particular, have a very hard time grasping nuance, and, and we tend to run to the extremes many times, right? If we mm. get into a Trump administration, we don't like what we're seeing. I could very easily see the American public moving all the way back to more of a technocrat, someone who has some kind of policy chops, somebody who's been in government for a while. Or, again, given that we have a very short attention span, I could see them continuing down this path and, you know, the Democratic Party putting someone else forward who has a media empire and a ready group of supporters. Uh, would that be Oprah? Could be. <laughs> but I've heard others in the mix as well. Uh, like who? I heard someone, uh, well, I'm not sure. This was probably one of those Vox or whatnot lists of people to watch, but I think Zuckerberg was put forward at some point. Yeah, I did hear that, um, as a matter of fact. Now, what what is, you know, when, when the Golden Globes were on, everybody was talking about Oprah, blah, 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 and then the next day it's like, do we really want this? Uh, what is the buzz in and around Oprah in regard to running there? I, I think uh, Democrats would love to have their own celebrity who was you know on board with their policy positions. And again, knew how to work the new media environment and had experience with a media empire. Uh, I think you know, there's a perception in politics now that you know, that kind of experience really is important in a uh, political environment where you know, 140 or so, however many characters, um, facility with that medium is going to bring you political supporters. Um, and so I think they're trying to keep up with the new technology but uh, remain who they are as a party and as their brand. Uh, us up in Canada are uh, constantly concerned about NAFTA and, and how that will affect uh, all three countries. Uh, where do you think the, that's all going to end up? Because it seems that one day it's, you know, we're hearing one thing and then the next day we're hearing something else. Uh, you know, we certainly know the art of the deal and, and, and you know, how he works in that respect. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, how will Americans react if he just decides to turf NAFTA? It's a great question. I think you'll have... You know, folks who are you know, versed in <laughs> some of the economic effects of, of NAFTA um, uh, unsettled by that proposition. Uh, and then I think you'll have a, a fair portion of middle America who have built NAFTA into this boogeyman that, you know, forced the, the steel mills to leave and forced the manufacturing jobs to leave for Canada and Mexico. And so, again, as with many other reactions, I think it's going to be a polarized one where you have some folks who... Um, fear what it might do in terms of the, or the um, instability or unstable nature of the economic situation in North America. And I think you'll have others who will see NAFTA going away as a, a political win for their side culturally. Whatever happened to the whole fake news awards thing? Uh, whatever went, we heard so much about this, Jacob. Do, do we think that there was actually anything there, or is this just Donald Trump toying with the media again? <laughs> 
It's Donald Trump uh, doing his thing. Uh, you know, all the um, news stories that he highlighted were you know, failures of the the media. Um, most, if not all, of which they. But do you ever think there? Do you think there really was a fake news awards here? Like honestly, the way I'm interpreting this from from looking in is that you know it's just something that that came out of his mouth, just something that came to his mind, and he said it, and then the media jumped on it because you know they love themselves, <laughs> and uh, just kept promoting it. I think uh, Stephen Colbert took a, a billboard out in Times Square and such, and everybody's waiting for this, and then it keeps getting delayed, and it's like there is no fake news awards. It's not going to happen. So then in order to pull something together, it's here, kid, put a little website together, run all the stories that we think are fake and, you know, like that's it. That's right. <laughs> so, so, so what does this say to the media? Because really, at the end of the day, he played, he played the media like a fool. Uh, yeah, he, he's been known to, or been shown to, to do that a number of times. Uh, I, this is really doesn't have any empirical backing. It's just my personal observations. But you know, I think some of the media were um, a little shocked to, to see a Trump win and perhaps blamed themselves for not holding the campaign seat to the flame um, more, uh, as much as they possibly could have throughout the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, they presented this as business as usual, where here's one side, you quote them more or less without commentary, you quote the other side, and you know this way you avoid charges of bias because you're just using quotes from both sides. This mm-hmm. is a fairly common tactic used in, in a lot of the media um, to, again, avoid those charges of bias and to, to show that you're giving some credence to both sides. And I think that that went out the window pretty quickly after he was elected. And now they perhaps may throw out some of those journalistic expectations and some of those um, norms that they use and jump on these stories a little more quickly than they they possibly should have. Um, And so I don't know if this is happening, mistakes are happening at a greater rate, uh, but this is all something that plays into Trump's hands and he can have something like the sort of non-existent fake news award to highlight these failures even though there are mechanisms in place for dealing with folks who are a little too quick to quote something um, and, and whatnot. Do you get to the point, Jacob, where you're tired of talking about this stuff? Oh, absolutely. Or, 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 or as a political <laughs> science professor, do you just eat it up? You love it. Well, it's, it's an interesting mix. So it makes me relevant. I, I appreciate that. Um, but really the kind of current event type thing, that's, that's not what we do. We look more at trends. Uh, we look more at historical indicators. Um, by the time the things that we do for our professional lives hit the, you know, print, if you will, book or article, it's really already old news. Mm. Um, and so uh, this isn't something that's really part of my job, but it's you know, something I like doing because I, I enjoy keeping up with it, and I see the media side of things as, as part of the job as well. Uh, we've only got a couple of seconds left. How do you think history is going to look back at this president? Oh, I, I think the rankings are already starting to put him down there around uh, other failures of government. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, it's, uh, there's enough scandal going on to, to put them up there with uh, folks who dealt with things like Teapot Dome and other famous failures of presidential leadership. Jacob Nyheisel has been with us, Assistant Professor of Political Science, University of Buffalo College, Arts and Sciences. Jacob, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Happy to be here. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. North Korean officials have arrived in Switzerland ahead of talks with the IOC to finalize their uh, their participation. And you got to think the Olympics plan so much in advance. What's it like if all of a sudden in the last minute, or maybe they allow for this because 
North Korea kind of goes through this all the time, um, that, uh, you know, how difficult is it all of a sudden at the last minute to rejig everything in order to uh, accommodate uh, North Korea? And and also, uh, does this uh, goodwill gesture, does bringing North and South Korea together uh, actually uh, help the cause or does it hurt it? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Andrea Sharon, Center for Defense and Security Studies, University of Manitoba, and she is with us now. Andrea, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So is North Korea crashing South Korea's party? What's the reaction here? Is this goodwill or is this a party crasher? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I think at the government levels between North and South Korea, I think they're hoping that this might be the harbinger of future better relations, or at least the start of a conversation. But um, from reports of asking, you know, your random South Korean in the street, uh, they have some concerns about this. And certainly if we ask members of the women's hockey team, uh, especially if some of them won't see ice time because they have to uh, make allowances for a potential North Korean team, if you've been training for years and years for this opportunity, um, I'm sure you have some, some concerns about that. Uh, and, of course, uh, the reaction from uh, South Korean officials is, you know, take one for the betterment of the country uh, as opposed to the team. That being said, they'll point to Sydney and say, you know what, uh, we did the same thing back then, and now they're firing rockets over our heads. So uh, mm-hmm. what can we take from past history here? Well, there's been fits and, and spurts in terms of trying to get a rapprochement with North and South Korea. And through the International Olympic Committee, there have been a couple of uh, attempts. So in 1988, of course, they had uh, negotiations to try and be together under one flag, but that was to no avail. Um, if we fast forward then to 2004, uh, they marched jointly behind the Korean unification flag in the opening ceremonies, but then they competed for their respective national teams. Uh, What's different about this is that rather than just walking in in the opening and closing ceremonies under one flag, they would actually be putting in place joint teams in in especially the women's hockey team. And that that is very, very new. So we really don't have a precedent for that yet. You can certainly understand how, well, I don't know, how is this interpreted in both both North and South Korea? How do North Koreans feel about, you know, being under the same, uh, I guess, universal flag with South Koreans who, who, you know, apparently been their enemy for so long and vice versa. I mean, do either one want to march under a unified flag or, or, or their own? Well, there are a number of target audiences we have to look at. First of all, um, when it comes to North Korea, it's a very, very closed uh, state. They, mm-hmm. they don't have free access to the Internet, so I'm not sure we'd ever know what the, the common North Korean would think about this. They will be told what to think about this. Um, but there's also, you know, many families over the Korean War were literally torn in half, and yeah. half found themselves on the North Korean side, and some found themselves on the South Korean side. So they don't necessarily see each other as enemies. They've, they've, they've literally lost family members yeah. to higher political causes. Um, on the South Korean side, you know, the, there has been sort of um, some who say this is a, is a good thing, some that say this is a bad thing. The amazing thing about the Olympics is how it is often able to transcend, transcend all the politics 
and we're hoping that might be the case now. That being said, the International Olympic Committee has yet to make a decision. North and South Korea may want to do this, Hmm. but at the end of the day, it is the International Olympic Committee that has to say, yes, this can happen, and that meeting will happen on Saturday. Now, what role, uh, well, obviously you've said the role that they play here, but think of the the decision they have to make. Do they think about, well, it's in the best interest of sport, or do they think uh, what's in the best interest of of unification here? And how do they do this on such a short notice? Mm Mm-hmm. In theory, because they are the non-governmental organization and and responsible for the integrity of the Olympic Games, they should be thinking solely along the lines of what is best Mm -hmm. for the Olympic history and Olympic athletes. But realistically, given the high tension of this case, that will be looming in the background. Uh, On the one hand, uh, my concern is that if they say no, and North Korea cannot join. Mm. I'm not sure what what Kim Jong Un's uh, response is going to be. Um, on the other hand, uh, if they say yes, will we know if it is in fact because this is what is best for the Olympics, or because it is those looming political issues that that sort of overtook the committee? Uh, if all of a sudden the IOC says no, because obviously uh, South Korea has said, yes, we're, we're game for this. There's certainly been dialogue there. Uh, if all of a sudden the IOC says no, uh, will North Korea take that out on South Korea? I mean, it's not their concern. We tried. It's not our games. It's theirs. We're just the host city. Well, we're really not sure what's going to happen because this is, that. first of all, it's it's unprecedented what they're asking to actually form a joint team. Mm. Um, and the one thing about Kim Jong-un is that he's at, at the same time predictable and very, very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. We knew that he, for instance, wants weapons of mass destruction, but we didn't guess at how determined he would be. I mean, he has had trial after trial and public failure after public failure, and that doesn't seem to deter him. So when his regime is based on having the prestige for his people and a request he has made has been turned down. Um, he generally doesn't suffer fools lightly. So mm. I suspect there would be a reaction. I don't think it would necessarily be targeted against South Korea, but I'm not sure in what form uh, that that ire will take. Uh, we certainly know how South Korea is selling this. How do we think that Kim Jong-un is selling this to the North Koreans? I mean, is this a victory? They're going to let us in. They're going to let us in. Look, we're a part of the team now. Well, I'm really not sure. Um, You know, it's very difficult to get information out of North Korea. So I'm not sure if if he's smart, he's maybe hedging his bets and not saying anything in case it doesn't go well to give him some wriggle room. However, being the man we think he is, and, you know, he is quite vainglorious, I'm sure he's already announced this will happen and picked out the costumes that the the team will be wearing. but really, at the end of the day, I'm just I'm just guessing. I really don't know. And really, what choice uh, does South Korea have here? I mean, uh, if they decide, no, uh, we're our own country now. We have our own identity. We don't need you. You're not welcome. But then, of course, it's during the Olympics, some uh, missile tests going on. So really, they're sort of between a rock and a hard place here, are they not? 
They are, although concessions were made ahead of time that they would sort of limit any military exercises. Um, and so if, if South Korea is going to remain in good faith, then certainly they will be encouraged not to, to break that agreement. Now, whether or not North Korea will do the same, um, you know, we're, we're really not sure. Uh, who is North Korea bringing? Because, as you said, there's uh, I know there's a figure skating team that have, uh, I guess, made the cut. They're going to combine the women's uh, hockey team. Beyond that, is there many more uh, from North Korea coming? I understand they're sending, sending a huge delegation, in, including some performers. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I'm really not sure. Uh, I, I'm I'm don't know any more than what's reported in the in the media. I guess my point is, will this be a big propaganda thing for North Korea? Will they use that to, you know, show the world whatever they want to show us? That tends to be what, you know, all governments, but especially authoritarian governments do. Every move they make is an opportunity to tell the world how strong they are, how in control they are, uh, and they will micromanage the message down to, you know, the very buttons that are on uniforms. That's, that's I'm afraid, in the, in the era of social media, the, the times we live in. Uh, do you think uh, this, in the end, will help North and South Korean relations, or do you think this will end up driving a wedge between? Because there's, you know, I mean, there's the older generation that remember South Korea, the older generation that remember what happened from the war and the splitting of the families. There's a new generation where, you know, their identity is in Southern uh, South Korea, not North Korea. So uh, how do you think this is going to wash in the end? Well, it, it, really, have... it really seems that, that South Korea is divided on whether they want them there or not. It is, but, um, you know, there have been many times when we've gone into Olympics divided. You know, will Brazil be ready? What's it going to be like in Greece? What kind of show will Russia put on? Um, there's always this... Yeah, there's always a big story before, before the event, isn't there? Before the event, and, and somehow, magically, um, yeah. you know, in most cases, it works out beyond people's expectations. We see the thrill of athletes who have put so much time and effort into preparing for this, and, and really... That's what the focus should be on. And if I was the International Olympic Committee, I'd be trying as much as possible to deflect these wider political issues and focus on these athletes, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that will be hurt most of all. So do you think the IOC will bend and, and, and uh, adjust these rules to let North Korea in? Well, they've certainly been very public about um, saying that everyone is invited to celebrate, and I quote, our shared values to celebrate the best of the human spirit, to celebrate our unity in diversity. Uh, This was a a presentation made by the IOC president to the UN General Assembly. So from that statement, it would make sense that they would encourage this uh, trial uh, of togetherness. But it comes down to four individuals. It comes down to the IOC president. It comes down to representatives of North and South Korea and to the representatives of the South Korean Games who are hosting it. Uh, getting some email on this, uh, John writes, I wonder when the North Korean team uh, arrives if there'll be any defections. They see how good life is in South Korea. They don't want to go home. Do you think there's a chance of defections? I suspect that any North Koreans that come over to South Korea will be so closely watched and handled. It will be very, very difficult for that to happen. Will that be obvious to us? Will we see that? 
Uh, probably not because, you know, the cameras are hopefully going to be focused on the athletes and what they're doing. Hmm. So uh, it might be for people who are in South Korea, but uh, I, I would suspect that the North Koreans would be keeping a very close watch. Now, that doesn't mean that, that mistakes can't be made and people can s- slip by, but, um, uh, and that, you know, this has happened in the past, but I think they will be keeping a particularly close watch on their people. Even if you're keeping a close watch on your people, you're still in another country. What's to stop somebody from getting, you know, finishing with whatever event they're in and then going up to somebody of some sort of authority and saying, you know, I'm being persecuted here. I want to stay. What happens then? Well, that certainly is a possible scenario. I I suspect that the North Koreans would hang on to any sort of identification that their their personnel would have. So they would be coming to people with, you know, no proof of who they are or what they're doing there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But this is why we have embassies and consulates throughout the world. Uh, If it was a Canadian seeking help, they would go to a Canadian consulate or the designate uh, country that representing Canadians and say, I need help. Yeah. Uh, in the case of North Korea, um, they won't be going to a North Korean consulate. No. I think they'd go to any consulate they think would perhaps provide them uh, support. And, and Would they have to go to that extent? What if they just went to a peace officer or anyone like that and said, I don't want to go home? Uh, that I'm not sure about. I'm sure the South Koreans are, are sort of coming up with those scenarios mm. and will... will yeah, because I guess they don't want to handle that either, because then the war is, no, give us our people back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, How do you think the U.S. is interpreting all this goodwill between the North and the South? Well, I think all states are hoping that uh, we can come to some sort of solution and, and more stability without sort of any use of force, and, and so they would give this a chance to to happen. Um, certainly in Vancouver, the, the mood was, we want ultimately a solution. We don't want to go for a military solution, and therefore we're considering all sorts of options, including diplomacy and sanctions. And the Olympics has been you know, one of those tools of statecraft that have achieved in the past some, some quite helpful results. Uh, one listener uh, wants to know why there isn't more optimism around this, why people aren't looking at this like, wow, this is going to be great. The Olympics are going to help us transform and bring these two countries back together and, 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 and solve a nuclear issue. Uh, why are we not being more positive about this as opposed to, eh, you know, how's this all going to turn out? Uh, is that just skepticism because we've done it so many times in the past and not seen really any change? Well, I think we're also predisposed to think um, the worst of North Korea. They've certainly given us lots of opportunity to think that way since 2006. They have been testing weapons of mass destruction uh, against the non-proliferation treaty. Uh, That that brings up an important point. You know, we have to try and not second-guess behavior. And if there are opportunities for rapprochement, perhaps we better listen to them. If we think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, if everybody was pessimistic and and never allowed the Soviet Union a chance to, uh, you know, make amends, well, not necessarily amends, but to reach out to the Americans, we might have had a very different uh, result. And so it really does take leaders of great courage to try and and, and not listen to the crowd and, and try and see if, they, if a solution can't be made. Uh, whatever happened to all that Soviet goodwill? 
You know, it seemed in the 80s we were tearing down walls. Now we're back to where we began. Not to change the subject, but boy, <laughs> it, it, it just amazes me how we can go from one to the other. Well, you know, I think the, 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 the Russians would say there's two stories. Um, yeah. In many cases, it's look at what you're doing to us. Uh, we can't, they're not participating in the Olympics, only athletes who have uh, cleared any doping um, right. tests yeah. who are allowed to compete and under the Olympic flag, not the Russian flag. Right. And that, that's a real blow for the Russians. You know, it's um, funny, that story has almost been superseded by this North and South thing. Yeah, it has. But if you go to the IOC webpage, I mean, the first stories are all about what they're doing to prevent doping mm. in the sport. Because at the end of the day, that's what yep. they're charged to do is 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 to make the Olympics the the amateur sports uh, event uh, every four years. Dr. Andrea Sharon has been with us, Center for Defense and Security Studies, University of Manitoba, talking about North and South Korea uniting for the Olympics. Andrea, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.